I clicked record. I just clicked record. Got okay, it. I'm rolling. Well, why don't you go five, four, three, two, one, go. Oh, mm -hmm. I see you. I see your four and mm -hmm. I raise you a five. Okay. <laughs> five, four, three, two, one, go. <laughs> Accents are required on the uh, voices. So, um, so okay. we'll be looking at, you know, early American and um, British accents right, will right. be the ones. There might be a nice. French or two in there, I'm not I sure. I mean, okay. does an early American accent just sound like a British accent or what? I was also yeah, it kind of sounds like Scottish, British, Irish, everything. Okay. A mix of everything. Good. I'm, yeah, I've been practicing that for sure, so. No, really? Perfect. Oh, yeah. Wow. I must warn all the patriots of the British attack. I must alert my father's soldiers. I cannot fail. Ride on, Star. Ride on. Fun fact, Sybil Ludington's horse wasn't actually named Star. That was a fabrication by author Martha J. Lamb in her 1880 book, History of the City of New York. What's that you say? You haven't heard of Sybil Ludington, let alone her horse? But you have heard of Paul Revere? Well then, shame on you. Just kidding, no shame here. You've come to the right place. Let's travel back to the 18th century and the tumultuous time of the American Revolution. Hello everyone and welcome to History's a Joke, a podcast where we deep dive into different stories from history. This week I am joined by Doug and Sierra. Hi guys. Neither of them have... What's that? Uh, I said hi. Hi. <laughs> hi, hi, guys. hi there. <laughs> Neither of them have heard this story, so they will be asking questions along the way and helping me tell this tale to its fullest comedic effect. Today we will be discussing Sybil Ludington and her midnight ride to alert the local militia to the British invasion of Connecticut. As we will learn, she both outworked and outrode Paul Revere, yet her story was lost for over 100 years. And even when it was finally told, it was questioned and disbelieved time and time again. Okay, quick question. So, yeah, Connecticut is in England, right? First, let's do a quick recap of the American Revolution and the struggle up to the point where Sybil's story begins. Modern-day America was originally founded as a British colony and was intended to do what colonies do best, serve their owners. The British government always kept a tight fist on trade and commerce in the American colonies, called the United Colonies of New England at the time. However, it was in 1651 when the Navigation Act was passed. Uh, Doug, will you read the full name? An act for increase of shipping and encouragement of the navigation of this nation. It wasn't until then that the colonial citizens started to feel an unease and anger towards their British rulers. While the initial economic effect may have been minimal, it was the audacity of the British government that really caused a stir. If one thing hasn't changed, it's the attitude of an American patriot. Don't ever tell me what to do or I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> That's right. Another event that had an unintended side effect was King Philip's War, 1675 to 1678. I hope you're writing these down. I wait. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. This was a conflict fought at the behest of Britain and waged between New England colonists 
and several different local Native American tribes. What's unique was the colonists were the only British forces in the fight. The government never sent any soldiers from the mainland. This, some theorize, created a uniquely American, or rather New English, identity. Colonists had fought for their crown and defended their homeland all by themselves. Why should they acquiesce to the foreign government in any other regard? So this is interesting. So, I, you know, New England, that's this region in America, mm-hmm. but it, it's, I, I don't know what the actual border of it is. And I don't know what it's like historical significance was. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I guess... Because it was a group, because there was all these colonies, 13 colonies back in the old days. And mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. I guess some group of them was New England. And that is that, and then it just sort of that identity stayed until the modern day. That collection of, I believe it's the states um, north of New York. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So Connecticut, Vermont. And is Maine among um, them? Maine, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Massachusetts, obviously. Mm-hmm. That's the Plymouth Rock and... Mm-hmm. Uh, Things moved around because Jamestown was the original British settlement, and that mm-hmm. was in Virginia, mm-hmm. um, not mm-hmm. at all in New right. England. But that was the you know the OG first city, first British city in America. Okay, but the main the main point of my question really is just even at this time, the the name New England existed. That it was a an identity that existed mm-hmm. for a certain mm-hmm. group of the colonies. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was and it was how how they referred to themselves. Like I said, the they literally you know officially call themselves the United Colonies of New England. And I think both back in Britain and, uh, and alike, people referred to it as, as New England. Yeah, there you go. This mindset carried into the revolt of 1689, successfully seeking to end the recently imposed and aggressively disruptive dominion rule over New England. Around 8.30 a.m. on April 18th, 1689, a local colonial militia entered Boston and arrested the British Dominion leaders and eventually surrounded the Dominion governor's fort, forcing his surrender. January 6th much? Yeah. <laughs> Basically. I mean, well, yeah. it's hard to know whose side I'm on, uh-huh. but you know. <laughs> Basically a mini revolution. This ended Dominion rule and the British government never again attempted to reimpose the order. Wow. What ensued instead was 100 years of various types of taxations, eventually culminating in the most famous tax, the T tax. That's right. That's on the letter T, right? Like anytime you mm-hmm. use the letter T, mm-hmm. you have to, oh, that's what I thought. That's, yeah. what that that's why you see all those weird T's back <laughs> yeah, in the olden times because exactly. they're trying to get around the tax. That's right. Ah. That's right. You add a little, yeah. It looks kind of like a, a C different. or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You're like, what? Okay. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I actually will do uh, an entire episode on the Boston Tea Party um, at some point because uh, mm. it's really interesting and it's it's a whole another can of worms and mm-hmm. um, yeah, extreme January 6th vibes. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. In the decade preceding the revolution, the colonists were involved in yet another war waged against the American natives, the Seven Years' War, 1756 to 1763. And pencils down. Okay. This was a massive conflict on the American continent that involved nations from all over the globe and is widely considered to be the first world war. Hmm. Hmm, so why did they, that. well, so like why, okay, by whom? I mean, clearly yeah. it's, when you refer to World War One, it's involved, yeah. everybody who was anybody was there. Uh, you know, <laughs> any, any of the major empires um, at the time. In 
it was largely between France and Britain. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were, you know, people who either took sides or who were, uh, you know, just trying to, um, you know, lay claim mm -hmm. um, in the middle of all the chaos. Right, right. I see. Um, and, so, so you're saying that some people were, were either trying to kind of curry favor with one side or the other in the hopes mm -hmm. of good, you know, partnership in the future. And other sides were saying, well, while this unrest is going on, we're just going to see if we can get some land get over some there. Get some land, right. yeah. Yeah. And there were Dutch colonies, British colonies, French colonies, Spanish colonies, uh -huh. uh, you know, right. Portuguese colonies, um, you know, you name it. Um, someone had some kind of... Originally, it wasn't just British. There were so many different kinds of colonies all over America. It was mm -hmm. just that the British pumped all of the people uh, there. And mm -hmm. um, that was part of the reason why they survived and part right. of the reason why they were also hated by the natives. Mm -hmm. And especially during the Seven Years' War... They had the least local native cooperation on the British side. Most of it was on the French side because all the French colonies uh, were largely trade and they mm -hmm. weren't for settlements. They didn't pump French citizens there. So the natives liked the French because they didn't <laughs> disrupt life and they yeah. didn't have these massive towns and 13, you know, colonies going on. Right. This is mm -hmm. the bunch of people who already had presence there. Right. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. A lot of these people already had some kind of right. vested interest or direct vested interest by I trade with with Britain and I get all of the tobacco that comes from America. And if they lose all of their colonies and I'm losing my tobacco, so I'm going to make sure they have a couple extra soldiers mm -hmm. or boats or whatever when they're fighting this war to make sure they keep the colonies because I have, you know. Mm, okay. That makes sense. Sybil's father, Henry Ludington, enlisted in the local Connecticut militia as a young man and served the British military during the war. Ludington was present for several key battles, including the siege of Fort William Henry, as incredibly depicted in the film The Last of the Mohegans. You guys seen it? I have I've not never seen, seen it. that. Michael no. Mann? Oh. Yeah, yeah, I hear it's very check good. Check it out. Yeah. One of them. Very good. Who, who, who's the star again? Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. So, uh -huh. and I... Right, right, right. When yeah, I was a little great. kid, it was out. I mean, this is the thing. This is an example of little kids being stupid. Okay, when I was a little kid, it was it was in the theaters, and I had recently seen Willow, which has Val Kilmer. Okay, yeah. Val Kilmer in Willow was, I think, the first man I'd ever seen with long hair. <laughs> and then I saw this this trailer or a movie post or something. Daniel Day Lewis, really long hair, and I yeah. said to my mom, "Is that Mad Mardigan?" Um, <laughs> and she said, "No, it's not." For his courage and service during the Seven Years' War, Ludington was promoted to the rank of lieutenant in the British Colonial Army, a position he held until, you guessed it, the passage of another overreaching tax. I didn't guess that. You didn't guess it? No, I didn't guess no, that. No, I didn't actually guess it either. Yeah, no. I yeah. didn't actually have any time to guess at all. Yeah. Let's try it again same. and see what happens. Okay, sure, okay. great, great. A position he held until, you guessed it, the stamp tag. No, I didn't. I, no, I, mean, I, I, I still don't have, I didn't guess it. No. Sierra, you should get full credit for that, I think. Oh, thanks. Okay. Well, I think so. In my opinion, anyway. I'm not the one running the show. Oh, thank you. Ludington resigned in protest, finally getting fed up with the bitter taste of the British government. Wow. Huh. Is it because he, he's always licking the stamps and he can taste the government every time? Oh, that's good. Yeah. This turned his attention solely on the land he lived and the colonies struggling to survive under the weight of the British Empire and the many other foreign hostile powers circling the waters, waiting for their turn to strike. Ludington was an aide-de-camp. You know French, Doug, how do you pronounce that? <laughs> it's going to be a repeat of last time, isn't it? 
it would just be Ed DeCamp. But I need a little, like, you know, put a little French on it. Yeah, a little more Ritz, maybe. Ed DeCamp. Oh, that's oh, that's exactly what I wanted. That sounded so good. Ed DeCamp. Or private secretary to George Washington. I've heard of him. Hamilton style. Yeah. Whoa. This is a big deal. Luddington, Sybil's father. Yeah, okay. He helped establish the Secret Service, which was a counterintelligence operation conducted throughout the American endeavor for independence. Luddington volunteered to command a local militia and soon found himself colonel in the 7th Regiment of Dutchess County. What's, what's, what's Dutchess County? Right, okay, so Dutchess County is the old name for what is now Putnam County. Uh-huh. I see. Yeah. We can see that Luddington was a key player in the American Revolution. This, no doubt, played a huge part in Sybil's passion for American independence. <laughs> also during this time, Luddington, missing his family, moved back to Connecticut and married his 14-year-old cousin. There's a lot of cousin marrying going on. That's how you do it back then. Wow. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. So this is the proposal. So um, Doug can take okay. Henry. So and, um, I'll do yeah, Henry. Yeah, yeah. All right. <clears throat> <laughs> my dearest Abigail, the daughter of my aunt. Oh, should I say aunt? I should say aunt for sure. Okay, back it up. <laughs> my dearest Abigail, the daughter of my aunt, my mother's sister. I have asked my uncle, your father, my mother's brother, for your hand in marriage. Please, dearest Abigail, accept this invitation to be wed and take my hand, be my bride and the mother to our 12 future children. Oh, Henry, that's the most romantic thing anyone has ever said to me. Of course, I will marry you and bear your 12 children, who will be both my mother's grandchildren and my grandnieces and nephews. We will be a tight-knit family and we will be ruthless patriots to this colony. Anywho, Sybil Luddington, <laughs> great, great. Sybil Luddington was born on April 5th, 1761. As previously stated, she was the first of 12 children, all living on their parents' 229-acre estate in modern-day Kent, Putnam County, New York. Wow. Then called Fredericksburg in Dutchess County. Yeah, 12 children. That's a lot of kids. I've never even met 12 children. That's an army right there. <laughs> yeah. This stretch along Long Island Sound, where Sybil grew up, was extremely vulnerable to British attack, something not lost on young Sybil. Even as a child, Sybil has demonstrated her wit and skill when she defended her father and the family home from a gang of angry pro-British loyalists who had arrived as a result of Henry Luddington coming out as a patriot. The story goes, as recounted by Sybil's great-nephew in the 1907 article, Secret Service of the American Revolution, the local loyalist named Ichabod Prosser baller name, mm -hmm. and his gang of fellow British sympathizers marched to Luddington's house on their way to join the British forces in New York. As Luddington was a famous local figure, his bounty for being a traitor was equally known. On this evening, the gang of over 50 men approached the Luddington house, prepared for a confrontation. Sybil and her siblings, knowing the potential threat, had been keeping watch all day and evening. As soon as the Ichabod Prosser gang was spotted, Sybil jumped to action. Candles were quickly lit all around the house. Sybil and her brothers and sisters shouldered rifles and marched around the house in military fashion, creating the illusion the house was well guarded by militia and patriot forces. It worked. Ichabod and his gang fled the Luddington property without incident. 
That's so cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Did you say Sybil was the the what of the twelve children? Where does where does she the first? I wonder how how old the rest of the the kids were because that that might have been some like really little kids with guns and they're like. An army. I'm just imagining this like as a Disney production, you know, and one of them has like the butt flap hanging open and like the dragging a teddy bear behind him while he's got his like gun on his shoulder, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no gun safety for sure, but. Lock your guns up, everybody. Lock your guns up. Or maybe don't have it in the first place. Just a thought. Or have, have 12 kids and a lot of guns and no one will attack your house. We have some options. Choose your own adventure. This is the sort of environment Sybil grew up in one of constant fear of British or loyalist attack and the ever-present pulse of America's strive towards independence. It's clear that these thoughts and goals were the driving force behind Sybil and the heroic actions she would soon take. Just 21 days after her 16th birthday, Sybil was called to action in the grandest way. She is now smack in the middle of the American Revolution, both politically and chronologically. This is after the Stamp Act, Everyone knows the Stamp Act by now. It's the thing that got her father to really... Yeah, get mad. After the Boston Massacre, after the Boston Tea Party, after the first shots at Lexington and Concord, officially starting the war, including rival Revere's well-documented midnight ride. They weren't rivals at the time, right? It wasn't like... She wasn't like, man, that Revere... He's so full of himself. He gets all the credit. Someone needs to take that guy down a notch. Possibly. Really? I mean, she certainly knew of. Wow. Okay. Revere's uh, role, his his official position of messenger, that was something that he was trained to do. He was did what he was supposed to. Um, that's how the messaging, si- which we'll learn about here in a minute, that's how the messaging system worked back in the day. Mm-hmm. After the Declaration of Independence and after George Washington crossed the Delaware, it is here April 26, 1777, that Sybil's father gets word the British have crossed Long Island Sound the day prior and are currently camped at Danbury, Connecticut, with plans to raid the supply depots there. Hmm. Wow. It's late. Night has already fallen. The rain is pouring down. Few choices are available. All of Colonel Luddington's militia have gone home for the planting season. They are spread out for miles across the countryside, working their respective farms. Luddington knows Danbury is already lost, but he can still save the surrounding towns and delay, if not stop, the British march inland. The grand plan being to take the American capital of Philadelphia, putting an end to the revolution. The invading British were spotted soon after they landed on the Connecticut shores, but it wasn't until the next evening that word reached Luddington. This demonstrates the importance of fast and effective communication especially during wartime. Here we go. Quiet down, boys. Quiet now. Quiet down. Almost there. That's right. That's right. Rose ashore. Right over there. Yes, quiet now. Quiet, quiet. Now, please. Yeah, quiet now, I say. Quiet. Shush, shush, shush. Right, yo. Yes. Out as quick as you can now. Uh, everyone find your buddy now. Yeah, keep it down. Keep it down. We, we don't want to be spotted once we've come this far. The last thing we want is to give our position away to the enemy. Ha! Ah. Oh, they've, they've spotted us. Yes. Yes. Look, right over there. Yes, they've spotted us. Yes, yes, yes. Oh. Well, how about that? Nothing left to do but slowly march the 20 miles inland to Danbury. Tryon's troops were fired upon by small groups of alerted militias to no avail. Tryon and his soldiers marched on, defeating or capturing those who stood in their way. More like tryhard, am I right? <laughs> a seven. A seven? Well, you're I, being generous. That's a little high, that's, yeah. That's a little high. <laughs> they reached Danbury on the afternoon of April 26th. They rummaged through the Continental Supply Depots, 
and marked Patriot houses to be demolished. However, heavy rain started, and the soldiers hunkered down in Danbury for the evening. As the British soldiers rested and sheltered from the rain, Ludington paced his living room, thinking on how he can alert all that need to hear the message of the British invasion. Enter Sybil. There are accounts of Sybil volunteering herself for this mission, and there are accounts of Colonel Ludington asking Sybil to undertake this dangerous task. Regardless, the gauntlet was thrown and Sybil stepped forward. She made sense as the messenger in many ways. She knew the surrounding land well. She was a competent writer. She knew her father's militia and where they lived. And most importantly, she was smart and driven. Any other writer, adult, man, or anything else, would have struggled to deliver the message in time, given the rough terrain and punishing weather. Sybil quickly mounted her horse, name still unknown, and took off into the dark, cold and rainy April night. Ludington watched Sybil swiftly disappear into the woods, then immediately began preparing for the coming battle. Wow. Sybil rides all through the night, stopping at each Patriot farm along the way, shouting and banging on the house to wake the militiamen and direct them to their assembly stations. Farm after farm, house after house, Sybil rides alone and sounds the alarm across her Connecticut countryside. Accounts vary, which we will discuss, but Sybil rode anywhere from 20 to 40 miles that night. That's By even the most conservative estimate, that was almost twice as far as Paul Revere's ride, and he didn't even ride alone for the entire night. Sybil risks are coming to the elements, wild animals, British soldiers, British loyalists and spies, and skinners. Outlaws with no allegiance, simply looking to gain from the unrest. Um, you know, when I was a kid and I learned about the whole Paul Revere ride and everything, like so many things, especially in, in uh, historical events, I completely for, just didn't actually, I learned the names and the words and the nouns and th- that this was a thing and people care. And that was like kind of about it. You know what I mean? I didn't really, mm-hmm. the, the significance didn't really be, become internal, you know? Mm-hmm. And I didn't really think about, you know, stuff like this person undertook this dangerous thing because yeah. I've never ridden a horse, let alone, you know, 15 or 20 miles or whatever, you know? So it's the idea of, of, um, of hearing about someone do that, especially when I was this little kid, it's just like, I could not possibly understand how hard it is, right? And then now here, speaking of kids, right? Here we have a kid doing it, okay? Mm -hmm. That's really, it's really remarkable. And then, you know, let's also add in the, the kind of the gravity of like this moment here where her dad is saying, all right, sweetie, uh, mm-hmm. pack a lunch and <laughs> off you go, <laughs> you know, and and then meanwhile, he's got to turn around and without, you know, being preoccupied with what he just sent his daughter off to do or what she volunteered to do. Uh, he's got to turn around and begin to prepare for what's going to happen at home. So that's it's really intense. It's it's very brave. And it, it also shows that she has an understanding of the gravity of the situation. Like she'd be riding pretty quick in the dark is just dangerous. Um, you know, tree roots, holes, like her horse, you know, trips, throws her, she hits, you know, to ride quickly yeah. in the, the poor, yeah, in the, in the, yeah. in the bad weather at night is so dangerous. Um, yeah. the fact uh-huh. that this young person was doing it, um, you know, as far as I know, Paul Revere had clear weather. You know, people who are like strong activists and they have kids and a lot of times their kids get their opinions as well. 
And then you'll see them, they'll be like, yeah, they show up to the protest, they got their signs written and they're waving them too, you know? And so I'm kind of imagining this being like someone like that, you know? We don't want to think about uh, what kind of protests these folks would be at these days. Let's just put it that way. Let's put it that way. Exactly. It's good they didn't have bumper stickers on horses. <laughs> right. The, the horse has a brand on its butt or something like that. When we, when we want to speculate about what would Henry Ludington be like, it's like the situations are so completely vastly different. You know, one can form no meaningful guess because, you know, back then, what here he's got, what situation is he in? He lives in this colony and he has this uh, oppression from the parent state, right? To me, what I see is a figure who is fighting against the man. He, he sees this clear, unfair oppression and he's fighting against it. With that in mind, I'd like to think that we would kind of be okay with this guy. I'd like to think he'd pull his mask up all the way on the flight, but he just won't. No, I know what you're saying. I, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, we, we can't we can't guess what, what, he, what he would be like these days. Mm-hmm. As Sybil was leaving the town of Carmel, I'm just saying Carmel because I don't know. I'm assuming it's not Carmel, right? It's Carmel. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a, Carmel. Yeah, no, there's, there's a city called Carmel in California also I've been to. It's Carmel. Well, maybe that's a West Coast pronunciation. Oh, shit. I'll do it both ways. You got it. Okay, good. <laughs> As Sybil was leaving the town of Carmel, I'm just kidding, I'm not. As Sybil was leaving the town of Carmel along her route, some accounts depict a local man offering to accompany her. Sybil reportedly declines and instead instructs the man to ride east to Brewster to raise the alarm. Nice. This, again, is the smartest thing to do and how the Patriot alarm system was supposed to work. Mm. One rider alerts a village or farm where more riders dispatch with different destinations, alerting even more riders until the message spiderwebs across the region. One messenger turning into tens of messengers. I like that. Yeah. By the time Sybil returns home, it is dawn and hundreds of militia have assembled. She is immediately congratulated by friends and family alike, and there are multiple accounts of George Washington and Rochambeau personally thanking Sybil for her courageous ride and acts of heroism. Huh. You guys, you guys don't want to do the rap? What's going on? Uh, no, not really. It's uh, it's it's pretty bad. What? I, I was trying to do a Hamilton thing. Well, my name is Sybil, and I'm here to say. No, I I really can't do this. Yeah, yeah, this kind of sucks. It's it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's embarrassing. <sighs> All right, fine, fine. Now that we know the Sybil Ludington story, let's look at some of the reasons why we haven't really heard of it in our normal American history, and why, by contrast, we know the Paul Revere story so well. Let's start by comparing the two rides. Not that we're keeping track. Paul Revere, first off, was captured on his ride. What? I like people who weren't captured. That's terrible. He got caught and he talked. I did not know that. Me either. That's pretty bad. Yeah. He was only released when the British outfit he was marching with to Lexington heard the town bells ring, signaling the local militia to arms. The British soldiers released their captives and fled back to alert the larger British forces. The American revolutionaries were aware of the impending invasion. Horseless, Revere walked to Reverend Jonas Clark's house, where both the Johns were staying, Adams and Hancock. Revere helped Hancock pack revolutionary documents and flee Lexington. Sybil, alternately, avoided capture and British patrols. Paul Revere only rode 12 and a half miles. Sybil rode anywhere from 20 to 40. 
Paul Revere did not ride entirely alone and also was a 41-year-old man on his ride on April 18, 1775. <laughs> Sybil rode entirely alone and had just turned 16. She got her, her new horse for her 16th birthday. A little bow, yeah. That's cute. Revere worked with and was friends with many of the founding fathers and key figures in the revolution. He was a Freemason, member of the Lodge St. Andrews No. 81, these connections and the fact that he was a 41-year-old man, not a 16-year-old girl, cemented his prominent place in history. Sybil was an unknown, and even though George Washington and Rochambeau personally thanked her, it took 100 years before the first account of her actions were published. Wow. This account, by Martha J. Lamb, in her 1880 book, History of the City of New York, was full of fabrications and exaggerations, mm. including the name of the horse, Star, Star, the fact that she carried a large stick to spur on her steed and to bang on the shutters of the militia homes, and the length of her ride. The high-end 40-mile climb may be a bit far, and at the time of the uh, book wasn't calculated by any sort of scientific means mm. um, although it sure. has since been mapped and if, if she had been like tiktoking a video of herself the entire time she would have like gotten into an accident the horse would have tripped on a route yeah good thing tiktok wasn't around there were plenty of accounts at the time but there were largely stories or letters passed down through families as opposed to published works the long period with no prominent articles or books recounting Sybil's journey, combined with the inaccuracies in the tales that were told, led to modern attacks on her story's credibility. Some historians questioning whether it even happened at all. I guess they are all ignoring our first president, George Washington. Yeah. What kind of a patriot calls him a liar? Yeah. I ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. There are far too many first-hand and second-hand accounts of Sybil's trek for it to be entirely fabricated. It's clear that good old-fashioned sexism and boys' club mentality left Sybil out of the story of America. Hashtag classic. That's awful. Sybil deserves better than that, for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's that's how they are. They want it to be the white men who, you know, want uh -huh. how many other people, other minority the groups. 41-year-old. Yeah, they want uh -huh. it all to be 41-year-old yeah. white men. <laughs> Who won the war and no one else and you know they leave every oh. every other group of people who helped fight in the revolution out of the yeah, story including amazing young woman during the war sybil continued her patriotism by serving as a messenger and spy the fight went on for another four years finally ending with the british surrender in 1781 the british of course returning 21 years later for the war of 1812 where you might remember doug I do. Washington, D.C. and the White House were burned to the ground. I wasn't around then. I thought you were. No, I was around in 1982. What? The War of 1812 is often referred to as the Second War of Independence, and one could argue was equally vicious and destructive. The conclusion of the War of 1812 in 1815 is what certified America's independence and ensured Britain would leave the colonies alone once and for all. Damn right. I would love to know more about Sybil being a spy. Yeah, me too. That Is sounds there any cool. more information about that? That sounds so cool. Only a few sources I even was able to obtain that from. That wasn't that wasn't even common. Wow. She must have been a good spy then. If Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of information. She was really good, we could assume. <laughs> After the war, Sybil married a lawyer named Edmund Ogden. They had a child named Henry after her father. 
and lived in the Catskills until Edmund's untimely death from yellow fever in 1799. Soon after, Sybil bought a tavern and put the profits into her son's education. He eventually became a lawyer and then elected as a New York State assembly person. Henry passed away and Sybil followed closely behind on February 26, 1838, at the age of 77. She was laid to rest alongside her father. So her her child passed away young? Right before her. Uh-huh. That's that's really sad. And she bought a tavern. Yeah. How, is that that probably wasn't common for women to be buying taverns. I cannot imagine no to to be a property owner and let alone running a business. Oh yeah. Uh no, absolutely would have been another sort of pioneering thing. That's pretty neat. Yeah. You know, honestly, her husband probably died and she was like, fuck it. Like, I fucking rode in the Revolutionary War. I survived the fucking revolution, being a spy in the Revolutionary War. I'll do whatever the fuck I want now, (laughs) you know? I love that, yeah. You know, a lot of these people were really religious, so there was probably a massive um, identity crisis, a massive religion crisis of like, why God, Mm -hmm. why are you even real? Why would you take my husband from me? And, you know, all this kind of stuff of like, how could this happen? So um, it's an interesting reaction, but what a great uh, kind of positive way to react to it. Mm -hmm. And for her son's education too, that's, that's really, really cool. Again, I I don't think I'd want to see them at a rally um, or a protest these days, (laughs) but great, great initiative. After the 1880 Martha Lamb book, there was a 1907 article written by Sybil's great nephew. This and a general revived interest in America's founding led to some recognition of Sybil, especially locally in Connecticut and New York. A statue was built in 1961 honoring Sybil, and in 1975, the Postal Service issued a series of commemorative stamps. Nice. The Stamp Act. The Stamp Act. Oh. Read the room, Postal Service. The Stamp Act. Also, it's a little like a stamp, like give me a fucking break. Yeah. Put me on some paper money, then we'll start talking. Yeah. However, in more recent history, her story is still questioned and disbelieved. In 1996, the Daughters of the American Revolution, a lineage-based membership organization, so puke, declined Sybil's war heroine status, claiming that there was insufficient evidence to prove the validity of her claims. However, the local DAR chapter near Sybil's home remains steadfast on her story and continues to honor her to this day. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So still a very controversial figure, apparently, as to whether it happened or not, or whether she deserves recognition, or people kind of can take it or leave it, it seems. So sorry to waste your time, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really neat story, though. It is a really cool story, and I've never heard of Sybil. Yeah, you know, that's the sad thing. Well... At least two more people know about it now. Three more. I already forgot. I put a lot of faith in younger generations. I always think that that's like where that's where it's at. You know what I mean? Crosses one's fingers that your kids will be, be will be better than you at everything that matters. You know, and that they'll learn from mistakes of the past and they will make fewer mistakes in the future. Ideally, hopefully, one can be optimistic and say that we're going to continue to progress and do good things. And it's really cool that you know this this girl was inspired by the climate of the of the time, you know, and especially in, within her family from her father and all of this to go on and say, hell yeah, I'm going to go all in on this thing that I really believe in. She committed to a really difficult thing. I mean, I I never commit to difficult things. So that's pretty awesome that that she w- was, you know, able to do that. Oh, I was I was I was thinking about um 
how great it is to hear about women in history in general, but also, you know, young women, or in Sybil's case, like, a, a girl, a teenager, um, and really, like, that, it takes so much bravery, what she did, and it's, it's interesting to think about what, you know, inspired her to take that journey, and the conversations their family probably had, you know, around the dinner table about what was going on, and why her dad decided to, you know, leave his position and all of that you know, feeding into her really making a difference and saving people's lives. It's nice to hear that that perspective and like a lost story. Well, cool. Thanks for joining in. Yeah, I'm glad I, I'm glad I heard that story. Yeah, me too. I feel inspired to ride a horse <laughs> in the rain and protest some things. Yeah. And then you could TikTok it too while you go, right? And that's actually what I was, that's why I wanted to do it was so that's that I good. could get TikTok famous. Yeah. That's good. I like that. You got anything to plug, Sierra? I would like to plug, uh, no, I don't have anything. <laughs> Looks around the room. Uh, buy local. <laughs> no, like, buy local. Plug buy local. <laughs> Pay for my groceries. Buy me a drink. No, I don't have anything to plug. Um, have a good day, everybody. You can reach out at historiesajokepodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram at historiesajokepod. You can find us online at lavenderfingerproductions.com. Tune into my Twitch stream on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I read literature. What's your what's the I'm handle? I'm there sometimes in the oh, chat. Oh, shit. And, and, Shut it and, up. And oh, he yeah. already hung up. He didn't share his handle. No, it's... Uh, oh, I can share it. You can? Great. It's twitch.tv slash Douglas Zwick. It's twitch.tv slash Douglas Zwick. Uh, I, was, I was joking when I said I already hung up. I, I, um, <laughs> <laughs> so. it's trying to help you out. History's a Joke podcast is supported by listeners like you. Find us on Venmo at History's a Joke. <laughs>